This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And nowadays, we're so used to our gadgets sending signals to and from space with satellite TV and GPS navigation that we probably don't even think about just how wondrous space exploration really is and how there have been tragedies on that road of discovery. On this day in history in 1986, we lost the Space Shuttle Challenger. The crew of seven included schoolteacher Krista McAuliffe from Concord, New Hampshire. That very same evening, President Ronald Reagan was supposed to deliver the State of the Union Address to Congress. Seeing our nation in shock, he instead delivered these 648 words direct to our living rooms. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the Shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes. Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. I've always had great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on this mission and tell them 
Your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them, this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. A few days later, the President and First Lady flew to Houston for memorial service. They sat in between two of the astronauts' widows, and Reagan later recalled, quote, I found it difficult to say anything. All we could do was hug the families and try to hold back the tears. By the time he got up before 10,000 NASA employees, guests, and the families of the astronauts, Reagan found his voice again. After eulogizing each extraordinary member of the crew, he turned to their families and he said these words. The sacrifice of your loved ones has stirred the soul of our nation. And through the pain, our hearts have been opened to a profound truth. The future is not free. The story of all human progress is one of a struggle against all odds. We learned again that this America which Abraham Lincoln called the last best hope of man on earth, was built on heroism and noble sacrifice. It was built by men and women like our seven star voyagers, who answered a call beyond duty, who gave more than was expected or required, and who gave it little thought of worldly reward. We think back to the pioneers of an earlier century, the sturdy souls who took their families and their belongings and set out into the frontier of the American West. Often they met with terrible hardship. Along the Oregon Trail you can still see the grave markers of those who fell on the way. But grief only steeled them to the journey ahead. Today, the frontier is space and the boundaries of human knowledge. Sometimes when we reach for the stars, we fall short. But we must pick ourselves up again and press on, despite the pain. Our nation is indeed fortunate that we can still draw on immense reservoirs of courage, character, and fortitude. That we're still blessed with heroes like those of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And this all happened on this day in history in 1986. And our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their great and free online courses. The story of the Challenger, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories. And every once in a while, we like to go long with a good book. And today we bring you John Bradshaw, who wrote The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. And John, let's begin with a quote from your book. Quote, Today we relate to animals much differently than our forebearers did. Our thinking about animals has changed dramatically over the past century or so. Talk about that quote. Well, the animals that live in our houses, we've, we've changed the way we think about them because they've become companions rather than simply pieces of equipment. I mean, this is what uh, your average American dog was 150 years ago, was regarded as something that's useful to have around um, for whatever purpose. It might be herding, it might be guarding, it might be hunting. But uh, the any sort of companionship that that dog gave was kind of secondary, although it was important because the, the bond between the dog and the, and the master or the mistress um, would have been an essential part of that working relationship. If the dog hadn't been bonded to the person looking after it and using it, then the whole relationship would not have worked. So, you know, we can't dismiss the whole thing of companionship. It's a common thread that runs all the way through. But nevertheless, it, the, the real purpose, the real function of these animals has changed to be one of almost complete companionship now. Um, and I think there's, a, there's another movement as well, if we're talking a little bit more widely about the kinds of animals that uh, we, we eat and we farm, um, then the rights of those animals, I think, uh, is probably only the last 150 years or so that those have been taken seriously by the majority of the population. And you now have very strong movements to you know, improve the way that uh, farm animals are kept. You have people who disagree entirely with eating meat, which would have been very unusual uh, in America. Um, certainly, even what 150 years ago, vegan uh, vegetarianism was almost unheard of. Um, the average American thought that chicken was a vegetarian dish. You know, the, the things have changed a great deal in the last century or so. So we've, we've changed the way we think about animals in general. We've given them far more personality more rights, but very much more than that, the animals that are in our homes, in the suburbs and the cities, uh, dogs and cats particularly are there for companionship and not uh, as tools. Almost a quarter of households, you write, in the United Kingdom and over a third in the United States have one or more dogs and cats share a roof with 30% of U.S. families and about 17% of U.K. families. So we're going to focus mostly on those two animals. Why did they win the pet lottery, John? Well, I think the short answer, it's, it's rather a trivial one, but I think it's because they were there. We had domesticated the two species, the dog and the cat, for very different purposes. The cat domesticated in a sense, um, but, not, but still allowed to run pretty wild because... We were keeping them, most of us were keeping them because they were good hunters, because they were good pest controllers, whether that be in the city or in the, in the countryside. They're, they're very good at controlling uh, vermin, rats, mice, and so on. Then we suddenly changed our minds uh, about whether that was a good thing or not. But nevertheless, we had already tamed them to the point where they could live alongside us and act as companions and of course, the same same with dogs, and and there the relationship was more bound up with companionship because companionship was an essential part of the training of dogs. Whether people who train dogs would like to admit it or not, it is a very important part. The dog pays attention to you because it is a very specially evolved animal. Uh, you know, other animals do not pay attention to humans in the way that dogs do. 
So um, they were kind of just, they were there. They were doing something else, but uh, were very readily able to adapt to the role of companionship because they were already, they already understood humans to a certain extent in their own way, of course. Whereas most of the other species, uh, even the ones that you know, people keep as pets like rabbits and small furries and reptiles and fish and all those things, they're kind of, they haven't adapted, they haven't evolved to understand human behaviour in the way that those, those two species, the dog and the cat, really have, and a dog especially well, uh, slightly better than the cat. By the way, you note in the introduction of the book that in the United States, owners spent in the year 2014 an estimated $60 billion servicing the needs of their pets. That's an astonishing number. It is indeed. And of course, a lot of that, I mean, some of it's to do with food, but the, the cost of feeding a pet animal has not increased greatly. There is more choice now than there was you know, when I first started out uh, working in this area 35 years ago or so. Um, there wasn't quite the range of pet products in the supermarket that there are today, but that isn't, hasn't been a step change. The real step change has been in what some people have called the humanization or personalization of pets. Some of that is the kind of accessories you can get for pets nowadays. Then there's the whole business of pet services, particularly in relation to dogs. Uh, people are realizing, dog owners are realizing that maybe their dog does uh, not like being locked up in their apartment or their house all day while they're out at work. And so there's a whole industry of dog walkers and so on who, who help you take care of your dog. These are service people. Um, and then there is the enormous expansion in veterinary services for both animals, but I kind of even almost more cats than, than dogs. Um, Certainly, you know, when I, again, when I first started out 30 years ago, there was really no feline medicine anywhere in the world. Cats, uh, veterinarians treated cats as little dogs. That was a mistake. Cats' nutrition is different. Their diseases are different. Um, their reaction to anaesthetics and painkillers and, and a whole host of things are very different. And so the, the science of feline medicine was born and the specialist uh, small animal and then feline specialist feline veterinarians uh, became you know a, a, a legitimate route for a professional so that's been a huge change and of course um, that's all been paid for by the owners of the animals uh, none of this would have been possible if owners had not been prepared to spend a lot more on their animals than they had done in the past in the past you know that if a, if a cat or a dog became sick and especially if a cat became sick um the veterinarian would often just say well it's only a cat you know uh, euthanasia is probably this the kindest thing to do now there are a whole host of remedies some of which are extremely effective for keeping cats going when you know their kidneys are packed up i mean this is a very common thing in cats their kidneys are probably the most vulnerable organ in their bodies um and yet now we have diets and and, and drugs and so on which will keep a cat with failing kidneys kidneys going for many years in what we we can only assume is, is reasonable comfort so that's where owners have changed they've changed in in the sense of personalizing their animals of thinking their animals as much closer members of the family much more valuable members of the family than they used to and uh, using their pocketbooks to back that up and let's continue with that thought john in your book you write these words quote over three quarters of u.s pets enjoy equivalent status to children and beyond that, many people claim that pets, especially dogs, offer their owners health benefits. What does your research say on that? 
There was a big study done in Sweden. Swedish are very good at keeping health records. So there's a lot of data there, very reliable data about how long people are living and how sick they're getting and how many visits they make to the doctor and all those sorts of things. And if you take dog owners as a whole, then they seem to be in general healthier and live longer than people who've never had a dog or have not had a dog for many years. But when the, the people who did the study drilled down into the data a bit more and looked at the kind of dog that people had, there were some extraordinary anomalies. So Swedish people who own Labrador retrievers seem to live longer than, than Swedish people who have other kinds of dogs or no dog at all. But Swedish people who have lab mixes die younger than the average now, that doesn't make any kind of sense if it's the dog doing the, the uh, you know, the dog is really the cause of the of the increased lifespan. And, and what the people who study these things are arguing now is, well, there are so many lifestyle factors that can come in when you people do or do not decide to have a dog. I mean, there are loads of things they have to think about. And any one of those could tip the balance in favour of it. So these are groups that are choosing themselves. There are dog owners, people who've chosen to have a dog, and there are people who don't want to have a dog or can't have a dog because they live in the wrong side of place or whatever it may be. This is not like a drug trial where you know, some people are given a pill um, which has got the active ingredient in and other people are also given the same identical looking pill which has nothing in it at all and they're asked to report their symptoms. Um but generally, people kind of tend to confuse those two things. Um, and so they just say, well, if the dog must be the cause, because that's what um, is, is being reported on. And, and it's not that. There could be all sorts of different lifestyle differences. And the more people look into lifestyle differences, the, the more they realise that um, many of them have an effect on health and, uh, and therefore in, in, in when added together in terms of uh, how long people live. And that a dog is just one of them. I'm not saying that having a dog isn't going to increase your lifespan, but I think it, it, you know, a lot of other things have to come along with it. And one of those is it has to be a very well-behaved dog. Um, because having a badly behaved dog is a, quite a stressful thing to, to do to to have, and whether that's um, you know that's generally because the person who has the dog doesn't really kind of understand what they've got, or maybe they get the wrong advice over training or whatever it may be. So the having the dog is kind of pleasant when you're watching TV in the evening, the dogs curl up on your feet, and less pleasant when you're out. Uh, in the dog walking park uh, and your dog is growling at every other dog and you're having to apologise. So there are ways in which dogs can be health adjuncts to a healthy lifestyle, but just going and getting a dog is not going to do it. And when we return, more of John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. This is Our American Stories. John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. We were just talking about how animals are members of the family, and along with that, you write, quote, dog and cat owners consistently overestimate their pets' other human qualities and mental capacities. Somehow, having a personal relationship with an individual animal seems to involve imbuing it with characteristics that science would restrict to our own species. Talk about anthropomorphism and animals, John. 
Well, I think anthropomorphism is a natural way that we deal, our brains, our minds deal with um, things that we don't understand. I mean, if, when you and I are talking to each other, we both assume that we kind of uh, are operating, our brains are similar, we operate from a similar base, that the language we use is the same. And that's a pretty good assumption, of course. So uh, I can imagine what you're thinking, you can imagine roughly what I'm thinking, and that works most of the time. But when it comes to animal minds, I mean, the carnivore mind, which obviously dogs and cats are both carnivores, they're both related mammals, um, they both have a brain which is completely different to ours. It's a mammalian brain, and it has some structures in common, the the basic emotions are all there, the pieces of the brain that generate our basic emotions like fear and anxiety and joy and and happiness and all those sorts of things. Um, they're all pretty much the same. But the thinking bit of the brain, the thing, the part that we humans kind of use all the time and probably swamps all the other bits of our brain in terms of what we consciously experience, uh, is much smaller in both cats and dogs than it is in us. That uh, that simple anatomical fact, and lots of studies that have been done of, uh, more recently, particularly dogs in MRI scanners, showing that the most likely kind of world that a dog lives in is one that is basically dominated by the present. It's like almost like a kind of Zen Buddhist existence where you're detached from the past and you're not worried about the future and you're existing in the moment and experiencing it very richly. And I think... For the best of our knowledge, and I'm sure that knowledge will improve, but for the best of our knowledge now, that's kind of a, a good way of thinking about um, a dog. So the dogs are not thinking back to something they did wrong or indeed something they did right yesterday, and they're not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow so much as they are living in the present and reading human body language, which is the thing that dogs are better at than humans are in many instances, and certainly better than any other animal species. So they are they're, they're living in the present and I think if we assume that, as some people do, it's a sort of shorthand to say dogs are like children in terms of the way they can they can think and so on. There's a certain amount of truth in that. Uh, otherwise, it would be you know we, it would be crazy to say it. But there's not enough truth, I think, to make it a general rule. I think it's much more instructive and much better for the dog or the cat if we think of them as animals that have a different kind of brain and therefore a different kind of subjective world to the one that we have. Now, this is something which most owners, I have to say, in my experience, have to be um, kind of led towards. They had not realised, there was no particular reason why they should, but they had not realised just how different the world is as perceived through the the, well, I was going to say the eyes of the dog, but of course it's really the nose is the important organ as far as the dog is concerned. But of course they'd use their eyes too. Their dog's world is not their world. Their cat's world is not their world. Physically, of course, it's the same. They're in the same room, but the messages that that room is giving them, uh, giving the human and the, and the pet, are quite different. Uh, and once you come to realise that, I think then stripping away some of the anthropomorphism is is beneficial to the animal and to the to the owner because the you know the, the, the owner understands the animal, the animal then understands the owner better as well. But it builds the bond. And that's so true. I want you to talk about a guy named Antoine because he tried various pickup lines with women at a park with and without a dog. Talk about what we learned from this young man. Well, Antoine, uh, as his name implies, was French, and I don't think it's any coincidence that this study was done in France. Um, but, uh, it, you know, leaving the humour aside, um, yeah, he was he was able to get more telephone numbers from young ladies that he, he approached when he had the dog with him than when he didn't have the dog. Um, 
that taken on its own might, might seem like a rather trivial study, but there have been all sorts of backup studies done in all sorts of different ways. Um, people standing on street corners and, and recording people spontaneously coming up to them. People setting up fake profiles on internet dating sites, um, which were which are identical except. Uh, one of them has, uh, in fact, the, the 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 particular one of the particular trials, the man who was seeking contacts was uh, basically the, his description was not particularly pleasant. It sounded like a rather a selfish kind of a guy, but uh, adding the fla- phrase "and I've got a dog and I love my dog" to the description, you know, suddenly he's getting ten times as many uh, approaches um, to his profile. So there is a genuine, I think, uh, robust kind of effect where men. And probably women. It's just um, the, the research hasn't has really bi- has been biased in favour of, of women approaching men in this instance. Um, but we certainly can be sure that men acquire some kind of trustworthiness, which uh, which the dog just having the dog gives them. I mean, the the person has no evidence that that you know this person is actually telling the truth. Or in the case of Antoine, uh, was that really his dog? Or, and did he look after the dog properly? Or well, did, or did he not? I mean, they, it's not really a question of detail there's no detail there at all um it's just the presence of the dog seems to make the person seem so much more approachable and trustworthy and that is a that's a very odd thing why would a, an animal um descended from a wolf uh, suddenly make um people uh, trust you and i think that goes back way back to something that 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 went on before even perhaps there was domestication, but certainly once there were domesticated dogs, because dogs were the first species to be domesticated, that men who were seen to be good with dogs, that was used as a proxy for, you know, that man is is, is good with dogs. He knows how to empathise with a dog, so he probably knows how to empathise with A, women, and B, with, with children. And so that made that man a better marriage prospect. Yep. In the chapter one of the family, you write this, The strength of the bond becomes most evident when a pet dies. And then you write this, which was fascinating. In the words of one 30-year-old lawyer after the death of her dog, quote, Before he died, I was so full of energy. My friends were amazed how many different things I was able to accomplish in a day. And now I'm exhausted, and I can't even bring myself to pick up my son from nursery school. So I leave him there, and his teacher takes him to her home to stay with her for a few nights. Talk about animals and death. Well, one of the unfortunate facts about pet keeping is that they have much shorter lifespans than we do. So having a pet die is something that almost every pet owner will experience. So it's probably not surprising that given that we do value the companionship of these animals so strongly that some people become grief stricken, almost literally, as in the example you've just quoted, um, at, at the loss of the animal, at the loss of the company, the change in routine. I mean, it's very similar to the, the loss of a close human family member. There are some key differences, though. One of them is that it, uh, the studies have shown that it doesn't, it can be just as acute but it doesn't usually last quite as long. Uh, some, some people will go on grieving for uh, the loss of human family members, particularly, as I suspect, parents. But even worse, if, if somebody's child dies before they do, I think the, the grief can be extremely, not just extremely deep, but extremely long. It can last the whole the rest of that person's life. 
Grief for Pets is not quite like that. Um, some people say I could, will say at the time, or maybe even a month or two later, I can't, I couldn't possibly ever replace him or her. You know, he or she was a unique dog or cat, um, and there will never be another one like them. But then maybe a year later, you find that, you know, they have, they've been to the shelter uh, and, and taken another dog or another cat or whatever, um, having recovered from the grief. Now, we, you know, we don't do that with, with humans. We do not deliberately seek out surrogate relationships or replacement relationships for the ones that we had with people who've died. We regard those people as being utterly new, unique, I think, and irreplaceable. Whereas with pets, although we do regard them as personalities and having rights of their own, we, I think there is a some sort of blurring there as well. We do also regard them as being part as, as a dog uh, or a cat or whatever they would happen to be and therefore eventually once the initial shock of losing the animals gone then then we can uh, move on and and replace them and when we come back the final installment of our conversation with john bradshaw author of the animals among us how pets make us human available on amazon.com more after these messages continue with john bradshaw author of the animals among us how pets make us human and john we've talked a lot about how we've elevated the role of animals in our lives but it's not all good all the time you wrote about leonard simon a psychoanalyst practicing in new york in the 1980s who interviewed hundreds of randomly selected pet owners this is what he said quote not everything i heard was benign With some people, I became convinced that their lives would have gone altogether differently and better if there had been no pet. All too often I heard of wasted years and stagnant lives in which almost everything a person did revolved around his animal. I heard of divorces that might never have happened, and I heard of some that probably should have happened long before, and after the pet died, they finally did. I heard of children that were neglected for the sake of a pet, I heard of children that might have been born if there had been no pet. I heard of children that were bitten by dogs that had given clear signs of serious jealousy, but whose owners were unable to part with them. Talk about this downside. Well, I think there's a bias in the reporting of pet ownership. Most of the people who study pet ownership are enthusiasts for it. There are few people, one or two, but they tend to be kind of marginalised, who are, are much more sceptical. But there does seem to be a kind of relentlessly upbeat thing about, about pet ownership, which has been going on now for quite a long time. You know, it isn't straightforward. And I think the danger is that by putting a, a rose-tinted haze around pet, uh, pet ownership, there's a possibility, in fact, I've, I've seen it happen, of drawing people in who really have not thought too hard about the downside, the potential downsides, um, the difficulties, the expenditure, um, the, the, what, what to do if their dog is not the one that they hope that does not have the personality they hoped it would have, all those kinds of things. So uh, 
there is a there is a risk to the pet i think if um or to the pet population anyway if if we um you know if we make pet pet ownership look too good and too beneficial uh, and that give the impression that you don't have to put too much effort in and you'll get loads of benefits because the reality is particularly with dogs is that the, you do have to put a lot of work in and the work the work is very rewarding i'm not saying it's not but i think there are some people who go into dog ownership without fully grasping the amount of effort they're going to have to take and the amount of money they're going to have to spend there's a long running study in the uk called the mass observation project which started in world war 2 believe it or not is still running so that this is basically uh, hinges on people who are recruited from all walks of life and write diaries. It doesn't tend to be based on questionnaires. It's much more based on what people actually spontaneously want to say. Each year, the, th- the theme of the of the project changes. And a few years ago, it, it was pets. And a colleague of mine at Warwick University in the UK, Nikki Charles, did some extraordinarily groundbreaking work, which really mirrored what the New York study showed which is that there are some people who talk about their animals you know, as if they are members of the family and they wouldn't have got, uh, been without them. But then you'll find uh, a widow saying, well, when my husband died, I was finally able to take his dog to the pound because he'd been a real nuisance and he had stopped us going on holiday and we wanted, I wanted to move house and we couldn't move house because of the dog. And now... You know, I'm released from that and uh, I can move nearer my, my children and I, you know, I don't have to live the way I used to live. And the way I used to live was really dictated by my husband, but, but and his, the way he lived was dictated by his dog. So there are equally uh, stories. They don't tend to get repeated very often. And I think that um, has, has kind of unbalanced the picture a bit. You note a bunch of doggy disputes and doggy hassles uh, that can make life worse for pet owners. And here are a bunch of them. What to do with the dog when going away on a holiday. The fact that the dog hasn't been walked or who should walk it. Whether the dog should be allowed on the bed. Whether the dog should be allowed upstairs. Who should clean up the mess in the backyard. Who should train the dog. Who should groom the dog. And my goodness, household damage caused by the dog. But despite all of that, you write this. Given all the hassles, obligations, and expense incurred by pet ownership, there must be a plus side. On balance, pets make us happy. Yeah, I think you know pets do make us happy, and that is, um, I think, if you just simply, it's 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 a truism, but I think it's, you know, like like a lot of truisms, it's true. You talk to pet owners, as I do, um, and they the first you know, thing they really tell you, they may tell you in all sorts of different ways, is that is the joy they get from the the company of the animal. It's kind of a difficult thing to pin down, and and uh, people have tried to pin it down in terms of of health benefits. I think that's missing the mark. I think the um, there is a um, the social side of it, the simple uh, fact that you have a companion who is reactive to you in a way that um, you've kind of worked out is going to work for for you the owner I mean you know obviously dogs are not responsive are more responsive than cats in general although there are some cats which are more responsive than the least responsive dogs this but but in general um, uh, people who want a relationship with an animal that is uh, they can pick up and put down they have busy lives but they do want an animal to come home to in the evening I mean maybe they're just 
they find a relationship with a cat is better because they haven't got the hassles of uh, that come with particularly with owning a dog so those relationships kind of evolve and they work themselves out and um if they do work themselves out in the majority of courses they cases of course they do then there, there is a genuine sense of companionship and uh, and joy that people get from it why they get that joy, I think, is, uh, is, you know, is a difficult question to answer. And one of the explanations that I've come up with in the book is that we, f- we find these animals attractive, not just because they're cute, although undoubtedly they are, not just because we enjoy looking after them, because we, because we do, but because they're hairy. Uh, and it's a, it's a scientifically proven fact that when people sit down with their dog or their cat, um, and everything else is good around them, um, they find stroking the animal very relaxing. Um, and uh, you know, the, the physiology backs that up. That it's not just, they're not just making this thing, these things up. Um, there is a genuine change in what's going on inside the body, inside the heart, inside the, the, the hormones that are going around their bloodstream. So um, this is a genuine change in, in the, the, the way the body is working. And it's reflected, of course, in in the emotional change that you feel more relaxed and happy about the world. Let's close things off with the uh, last story in the book, and it's a personal one, John, and it regards and it relates to your granddaughter, Beatrice. Talk about that. Beatrice is a well, she's my granddaughter. I I would say that, of course, that she's a very bright girl, but um, she has a fascination for animals, which I'm I'm not surprised she has. Um, But because I think many children of her age do and they in the classroom, part of the the program um, was to bring in some some hen's eggs that were going to hatch. They kept them in an incubator in the classroom and then every morning they'd go in to see how many of the eggs had hatched and one or two instances the eggs actually hatched during school time and they could watch it happening. And so this, you know, is, is a, I think, um, is for urban children like Beatrice. She lives in the town. She doesn't see a lot of animals. Is, is essential to understanding where things really, you know, how things really work, that not everything comes out of, uh, of, a, of an iPad or a phone or whatever, that, that there is... Real life is is there, and it's 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 messy and uh, and you know and, and fascinating at the same time. Um, so she and all her classmates were absolutely fascinated by these these chicks that emerged. Um, I mean, they're little fluffy things. Obviously, they're very cute. Uh, they make little peeping noises, which I think are part of their appeal, and they move in a kind of clumsy way. So that they're cute because they move like babies. So um, so that you know is, is all part of the is all part of the appeal. But it, it does show, I think, how it. These things, are, they didn't have to be encouraged to do it. Um, these are things that are intrinsically fascinating and that human beings do have uh, an instinctive fascination for animals. I'm not sure, sure we all do because there does seem to be some genetically based variation, but um, the majority of us do. And I think for the future, then we need to to nurture this particular instinct because if we don't, I think children will grow up with no empathy for animals because they really don't understand what they are. Uh, they just see them in two dimensions on a TV screen or whatever. Um, they don't understand just how real a real animal is uh, in the in sense that, um, you know, it, it's there and you can smell it and you can hear it and see it and touch it, uh, uh, which is so much more real than, than the, the best simulations that we can generate through computers today. And thanks to John Bradshaw for joining us and spending this time with us. And special thanks to him writing the book, The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. Go out and order it on Amazon and buy two. Get one for a friend. 
I'm promising you they'll say thank you. There are so few books that can hold your attention on a subject so big and so smart and so close to all of our hearts because I don't know many people who hate animals, and they're odd ducks to me. And by the way, if you get a chance, go to Our American Network. We've done a lot of really good book interviews. They're all up there for you to listen to free, to download onto your phone, listen on a long drive. Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, is one of my favorites, and it tells the story of American leisure time in the 20th century, actually. Another great one of Beards and Men, the revealing history of facial hair, and that's by Christopher Olston Moore. We also spent an hour with Richard Zacks, who wrote Chasing the Last Laugh, How Mark Twain Escaped Debt and Disgrace with a Round-the-World Comedy Tour. We also spent an hour with David McCullough, and the Wright Brothers, one of the best books that I've ever read. And my goodness, it just doesn't get better than that story of these two sort of crazy bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio. And they are the ones, oddly enough, who get first to flight. Not all those PhDs and scientists and fancy pants trying to get to space first and fly first. Also, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern World by Tim Harford. And another personal favorite, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. And that's from the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal, Greg Ipp. All of those books available on OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and thank you to John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. This is Our American Stories. Our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for the backstory, where Alex Cortez dives into names and brands we know, but whose backstories we don't. Take it away, Alex. Peter Cancro grew up on the Jersey Shore. Down the Jersey Shore in the summer, it became very, very busy, inundated with so many people from North Jersey and New York, so the jobs were very plentiful. Everybody was out working at a young age. It wasn't just me, it was everyone. Just trying to contribute to the family, help out, and none of our friends had any money, their parents, you know, no one. You didn't realize it or know it, because it didn't matter. You went out, made some money, and that's how you, you know, bought things and just sort of went after it. So I started out, believe it or not, mowing lawns. So at the age of 10, I had three lawn mowing jobs, one that paid $3, one that paid you know, $3.50, and one that paid $5. So in that year, that was big, big money, cash money. So imagine, though, um, a kid at 10 years old you know, operating a lawnmower with no protection thing, you know, putting the bag on and off. You know, it's funny, you look at it today, you would never let your kid at 10 operate a lawnmower. But we did, you know, it was fine. You had to work, make the money. Used to crawl underneath the boardwalk and pick up the loose change that people dropped through the cracks. Made money that way. And then the first job was at Mike Subs in uh, 71. So I was a 14-year-old. <clears throat> My brother 
worked there the year before and told the boss, so look at my, my brother, I know he's, uh, he'll work hard, but I'm not sure how bright he is. And so that's how I got the job. He's very smart, you know, one of those math major guys, and me, I always had to read the chapter twice, I think. Started out at $1.75 an hour, and I was gonna, you know, possibly work at Hoffman's Ice Cream, another mentor of mine, Bob Hoffman. Uh, he was gonna pay $1.50, but I uh, went to Mike's for $1.75, and that was, uh, that was pretty good money back then. I think minimum wage maybe was like 80 cents back then, so friends of mine were making 80 cents an hour. I was making $1.75. So I walked into Mike Subs, age 14, first job, and my voice mattered, and that was the culture that was in Mike's. It was, you joined a team and they kind of brought you on board. It wasn't like you were the rookie or they made you pay a dues or a price, no. They brought you in and you were part of that whole team and they cared about your development and how you worked and they spent the time with each new person coming in. So crazy sales we did, like $100,000 a week in today's dollars, you know, averaging like 850, 900 bread a day. It was incredible volume, the number one sub shop, if you will, in the country, in the world, because there wasn't really any of that back then. In 56, Mike's opened by someone named Mike. There was no McDonald's or Burger King in town then. There was no fast food restaurant. So it was really a unique product, the submarine sandwich, the meal within itself, if you will. And then the owner, Victor Merlo at the time, put it up for sale, and that was in 75. I was 17 in high school, so at first, you know, never in my mind in a million years that I think about buying the store. I thought for the first time I'll be able to go to Florida, you know, on spring break, because I was always working every other spring break, I couldn't go. So this, I said, all right, I'm gonna be able to go this time. But uh, as a business is for sale, no one really knows about it. All of a sudden I went home one night and my mother uh, said, I heard Mike's is for sale. And at first I was a little upset, like, well, how'd you know? Well, I found out. You know how moms are, they find out everything. Uh, so she looked me in the eye as I was going up the stairs and she said, well, why don't you buy it? And I sort of laughed at her, turned, went up the stairs and it took one flight of stairs before a trigger went off in my head. It was a Sunday night and I got up the next morning, didn't go to school for that week. You know, I called the owner that morning, I said, you know, Victor, I'm gonna you know, try, where are we? I'm gonna try and raise the money. I've got two people demanding a contract. I can probably hold them off a little bit. So I went out, literally knocking on doors, telling people, you know, I worked there for four years, I know the business, this is what you know, I'm looking to do. And I lived next door to a couple of wealthy towns, if you will, and went to see those folks and just called them up and knocked on the door and went to see them. And they were receptive, but as you know, trying to raise capital and money, it's always difficult. I had a gentleman, Mr. Ely, who was ready to give me all the money by Friday. And, you know, he was a great family friend, great uh, mentor as well. But all of a sudden he said, I want to be 50-50 partner. And I looked at him and I said, you know, no, I, I don't think so. And, you know, I said no. And I was down to zero, had no, wasn't nobody to turn to. And then called up coach Rod Smith, who was my youth football coach, who was also a banker. He was a youth football coach my last year, Pop Warner football. I was 13, I was a quarterback. And, you know, we won the championship that year. And um, he was like one of the 
unbelievable mentors and coaches in my life never raised his voice, but you never wanted to disappoint him. He was that kind of a coach, and you just sort of rose up and did your best with him, for him. And so many of his players, you know, say the same thing. He said, yeah, well, Peter, come on over. At first, he says, I thought maybe Peter was in trouble. You know, what's going on? It was a Sunday night after 9 o'clock, and uh, talked to him in the, in the living room, and he said, you know, I think we can do something, and, and he did. It was 125000 1975, I don't know, maybe 600, 700,000 today's dollars. So for a 17-year-old to borrow that, no money down, all financed. What if the business doesn't do well? What happens? They say, you know, why did you lend so much money to such a young kid? And he says, well, I knew Peter could get the ball across the goal line. And he was right. Peter later renamed this sub shop Jersey Mike's. And what a voice and what a story we're hearing. I mean, imagine going up to your Pop Warner coach, asking him for a $700,000 loan because you want to buy a business. And again, you're 17. And the coach says yes. And why? Because he says, I know, Peter, he's going to get the ball across the goal line. That goes right to his character, which is forged early, folks. We know these things about people real early. And it's hard to change, folks. More on the remarkable story of Jersey Mike Subs. The backstory of the founder, Peter Kenkrow. And by the way, my own personal obsession with Jersey Mike's. Everyone here on the staff knows I'll drive an hour out of my way. Because it's not just the best sandwich in America. But boy, it brings me back to my youth at the Jersey Shore. More of Peter Kenkrow's story, the backstory, here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories and the backstory, the story of Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kencrow. And by the way, credit to his mom, because how many parents say to a 17-year-old, you should buy the store? Putting that challenge to her young son, 17's not a grown person by any measure, really made a difference in his entire life. So at this point, he's 17 years old. He's balancing high school and the sub shop he just bought. I would go to homeroom, uh, history, and skip gym, English, and a few other courses. And it's funny, I, I wasn't going to be able to graduate in June because I missed like three months of gym. So I had to come up with a, a medical excuse. You know, it was my, my back. I had, um, you know, problems with my back. So the doctor wrote up that. I have a, like a, what is it called, a Shoreman's deteriorating disc or something like that. So that's what I, I held up. And it was true, technically. So I had to come up with something, you know. <laughs> I was president of my class. People said, oh, you're going to ruin your life. I was supposed to go study law at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, but bought a sub shop instead. You know, if you look at Europe, right, so if you're in the restaurant or hotel hospitality business, that's an honored profession, the same as an attorney or a doctor or anything else. And here in the States, it's become more similar. Years ago, it was like people from New York, Wall Street would come down, come into the store and say, are you making subs for a living? I go, yeah, I guess I am. 
You look at a lot of concepts out there, like Five Guys, how much more expensive are they than a cheeseburger at McDonald's? Like, wow, you know, totally different product. And that's kind of where we're at. We're, we're doing things different than anyone out there. No one is doing what we are doing in the sub sandwich business. No one is fresh slicing every sub to order and fresh grilling the cheesesteaks to order. Now they may, you know, fresh slice the coal, but they're not fresh grilling the cheesesteaks. They're not cooking their own IVP top rounds in the oven for roast beef. It's the best quality, you know, of the product available. Fresh sliced onions, fresh sliced lettuce, and sorted tomatoes, red wine vinegar, olive oil blend. No one's doing that. It's a red vinegar, not the red wine-based vinegar. You know, all the little nuances with the business. And that's where our tagline now is a sub above, you know. So it's really resonated and worked for us. People get it. They come in and the quality and the quantity of the product. You know, we're putting on twice the amount of any leading chain and three times the amount of other leading chains. So it's two to one minimum. If we were going to have the state sandwich, it would be a submarine sandwich. You know, you have Kentucky Fried Chicken, you have Tex-Mex, you have, you know, different states are known for different products. So Jersey, it's a submarine sandwich. I mean, convenience stores sell them, pizza shops sell them, delis are selling Everybody on every corner sells submarine sandwiches here in Jersey. So to stand out in this market, you've got to be the best quality, the best quantity in the business. And that, that's kind of where we feel we are. So we don't necessarily compare any ourselves to any competitor. We just say, hey, we're doing things different here. Whenever you're dealing with the public, you always have good stories. Lots of, lots of crazy stories. You have fun with the people coming in, and they have fun with you in return. So you're three feet away from the customer, whether they've had a bad day or not. You try and turn their day around, make an impact, share your life with the customer. They shake their heads, you know, Peter, I can't believe the people you've got in here, the service. Oh yeah, your subs are good. That was always secondary, it was always the service. And it was more than just, hi, how are you today? Thanks very much, come again. No, it was real, it was genuine. And that's the biggest thing we preach today, is be yourself behind the line. Really captured a lot of attention and all the people traveling to the shore and then going back out to where they lived around the country. Word spread, and everyone would say they don't have anything like this where I'm from, California, Ohio, Chicago. And it's funny how we used to get people to come in and take the subs, wrap to travel, and take them back, you know, all over the world. The guy come in every third Thursday and take them back to London. You know, somebody would take them to South America. I had a doctor's group that took them to the Soviet Union at the time, Russia, you know. So we always kind of would have a, a laugh about it. It wasn't until, gosh, like 86 that finally we said, you know, we should you know, try and start franchising. And that was a process, going to different companies and attorneys and figuring it out. And there wasn't any roadmap there. I had to figure it all out. It wasn't, I didn't have any mentors in business to kind of show me uh, today. Like, it's funny, today people say, I want to franchise. Well, let me talk to you. You know, I could shed some light on this whole industry. So we finally started franchising 86, 87 and it took off. People came in, we didn't advertise to sell, and it really grew very well in Ocean of Monmouth County. And then we went out to Ohio, we went out to Tennessee, 
and opened the store and we got the best sub award and for by Reader's Choice awards pretty much in, in Ohio and Tennessee and, and that's happened almost in virtually every market that we went to. We had one store in, in California, one store in Seattle, we'd win the best sub award, best sandwich award in the market. So it kind of told us something like, wow, this can work across valleys, mountains, you know, and and one store, and we never had a goal of opening a second store or a plan. It just sort of evolved and happened. People would come in, try the product. Oh my goodness, this is great. I want to open up one. So that's how it evolved, you know, and just really grew through word of mouth. But I tell you, when we opened one store in a, a totally different market, we went and we opened up that store with the owner. We stayed, you know, for weeks, for, you know, a month if we had to, a month and a half and with several people. So the, the amount of money that we spent and committed to the owners was incredible. Every dime we made, we put back into the business. And if we had leftover money, we were pushing the marketing for that store opening. And we evolved to the point where we were opening and spending all the money and some. So we had a, boy, if everything was fine as long as we kept opening. And then 91 happened and uh, that recession. There was many recessions from 75 till now, but that one was the one that hit our company the worst. So banks in the Northeast, all of them got hit. There was even a local bank that actually went out of business here. So banks were giving money nonstop to everybody that wanted to open a business, and all of a sudden, no money. Nobody could borrow any money. So we sort of flatlined for a while. I was negative, like a million and a half, a couple of million dollars. I said, oh boy. And to the point where I had to lay off the six people that I had working for him. All of the people working for him, including his brother, at his quote-unquote office. A little uh, 400 square foot office over a local store. We called it International Headquarters. And uh, everybody that was kind of working it and everything I had to lay off. And it just really, you talk about just devastating your life, your soul, everything. Um, you know, I thought we were, you know, done out of business. But, uh, but I tell you, that was a, a dark time because, you know, first time in my life that I went down and got stripped, you know, everything. You know, my whole life successful in sports and athletics and then to have my own business and, wow, this is great. And and really moving and growing, and that was the first hit that I took that uh, I guess, you know, more than got knocked out of bounds, but sort of knocked out. <laughs> so sold everything, and it's funny, the 401k plan that people have, I liquidated that, you know, how to take the penalties, and later on I liquidated it again. So it's funny, I don't have a 401k plan. <laughs> Still today, because, you know, I say it's, it's uh, bad luck, you know, I'll have to liquidate it, you know? So it's funny. But uh, amazing how many bills you can pay when you didn't have any payroll. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, you had to really just get in every day and show up early and just work it out and try and figure it out. I had a little legal pad and, you know, write down my notes and thoughts through my pen, if you will. You know, I never made it to the computer age. It was quite a process. It took probably, gosh, you know, a couple of years where we just had a, you know, hired back a couple of guys and slowly grew. It really took a while, 92, 93. And then finally, like, oh gosh, it wasn't until like towards 93, 94, all of a sudden, you know, okay, now North Carolina, a guy came in and opened up. And then 
Somebody saw the store, oh, I want to open up, and I think the economy in, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina then was really started back sooner than most other economies with the research triangle and the college universities, and so North Carolina really made our company and then hired everyone back. And you're listening to The Backstory, Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Cancro. We hear this in so many stories about entrepreneurs, and we should tell them more often. It's not a straight road to success. And getting through not one but two real big crises with his own 401k. I mean, imagine twice having to take the penalties and cash in your own retirement savings and lay off your own brother and start over almost. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the backstory of Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kenkrow. stories and Jersey Mike's founder Peter Kenkrow's story. Now we return to Peter on how he selects employees and franchisees for his team. You meet, you know, 15 different people, you know, in a group, and you can tell out of that group who's got that spring in their step that's got some enthusiasm that has the quote-unquote energy. You know, they are genuine, they're real, they're something about it that clicks. But I always ask, hey, where'd you go to high school? You know, what sports did you play? Were you involved in activities? Were you involved in, you know, I was the alternate on the chess team, you know, and what did you do with your life up to now? And and how did you treat people? You know, did you kind of bring people along with you? Did you raise up together? So we're sort of looking for that similar culture that we care about. It's hard to, you know, I wish I could, you know, write it down, this is what you do, but there are certain attributes, are they, buttoned up or their shirt tucked in that they get out of the car walk to the building with a good pace you know it's funny I, I told the office at the office lunch and I'm always looking at people when they're walking you know in and out of the parking lot what's their pace you know that they have a sense of urgency so it's funny you know that sort of describes people to me you know on a short brief version you know how do you see if somebody is going to work you know well as an owner long-term, or an employee or a partner, long-term. It's those first things that you see, that you feel, that you sense. So someday I'll write it out, you know. Alvaro Garcia, who escaped a war-torn country, is one of those franchisees that Peter had a great gut feel about. Yeah, Alvaro came from Nicaragua, bombs going off and exploding. He was missing for a day or so. They thought he was killed. And then later, years later, he comes to this country, immigrates, and uh, was working with Domino's Pizza, and, you know, an amazing worker, and just nonstop, and gets involved with us, and we had a connection. You know, I meet Alvaro, I go, what are you doing? You know, and I hear about his background, and he looked at me and goes, what are you doing? You know, so I love, you know, people kind of, that connection, and today, you know, he has, uh, I don't know, like 55 stores. He's the largest uh, franchisee. 
cares about his people, committed to the communities. He really gets it. And he and his wife, Blanca, and his whole family are a part of our family. And Peter's idea of family that should be loved and freely given to is a pretty expansive one. It's, it's funny today, a um, couple of times in interviews, people say, well, you know, this giving, you know, and everybody says, well, cause-related marketing is what you should be doing. The marketing experts will tell us. And I say, okay, well, I guess I'll keep doing that then. But ours started in high school, Bob Hoffman, Hoffman's Ice Cream, and Jack Baker of the Lobster Shanty gave unconditionally to the youth, to the community, to the first aid. And when you're a recipient of that in high school, local businesses kind of taking care of you and interested in you, you see them doing that and you say, wow. So when I took over 17 senior in high school, I said, well, this is what we're going to do. And we gave, you know, unconditionally to the community. And that's kind of how we, we really are, the, the company is based on today. Our mission statement is giving, making a difference in someone's life. We call it the power of the sub sandwich, we like to joke. But it's true. I mean, it's a, a connection with the people coming in. It's getting involved in the sports teams. It's getting involved in the heart walk, the MS walk. Um, anything that's going on in the community, we embrace and we donate food. Hey, you know, there's a Holiday Express tour. They bring hope to, I don't know how many concerts they do around from Thanksgiving to Christmas in this local area here. Tim McClune heads it up and we donate, you know, thousands and thousands of sub sandwiches to all of these shelters and to hospitals and they come and play and Jersey Mike subs is there. And I always joke with Tim, I say, well, you know, they're coming for the subs. He goes, absolutely. You know, so we joke about that. But that's what it's about. And that's the commitment. That's what owners all around the country, they get it. And, you know, we have that giving day in March where we raised uh, like seven and a half million dollars last year. Who knows what this March will bring, hopefully over eight. But it goes after local charities. Owners give away all their proceeds for the day, everything. I mean, I don't know why, but they do. And it's funny because uh, I thought maybe 50% they would have given, but no. It's really gotten a life of its own where people want to do it. It's not mandatory. And everyone buys in. Everyone wants to do it. And I, I think it's unique, you know, out there in the industry. The old days of businesses being involved in the community, in our lives. I mean, that's how it was growing up, you know, that business was part of the community. And it's pretty simple, pretty basic, but, you know, not many get it. And we do, you know, that, that caption of the, the day of giving, we call it give to give, you know, that's the premise of it. So it's pretty powerful. You know, it's funny, a lot of people say, oh, you know, give back and, oh, if you give, it's going to come back to you. I go, no, 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 you're missing it. We're just giving, we're just committing to, to communities, to people's lives. That's, that's what we care about. We don't, you know, if something comes back, great, but that's not why we're doing it. It's that whole give to give uh, deal. Now, obviously you have to have a good business model and make profits to be able to give, but it's kind of, it has to, what comes first? You know, so right away we start by opening up and donating money to a local charity and raising awareness for the local charity. 
And they do this every single time they open a new store, which goes like this. So we open up on a Wednesday and we go out door to door a few days before and um, kind of get involved with the local local uh, charity. It could be Booster Club, it could be First Aid, it could be Children's Hospital. It varies, again, wherever the owner wants to go after. And we'll go out and say, hey, you know, come on in, free sub with your $2 donation because it's going to a local charity. People have never been in, never tried our sub possibly in a new area that we open. So we say, hey, you know, come on in and give us a try and just for two bucks and you're going to help the, okay, okay, that sounds great. And uh, we open and it's a catch-22 because it's just packed. But we got the people and the staff and we're kind of cranking it out as we say. We raise the money and gosh, it's uh, sometimes, you know, 10,000, 20,000 from the opening or, you know, sometimes 5,000, but it's uh, every store does it. And it's a way to kind of, we're here, you know, hello, we're, you know, making an impact and uh, the crew loves it. They're like, wow, we've never been involved in something like this. Nobody kind of does this, you know. So that's the most important thing. It's not patting ourselves on the back or saying, hey, we do this, we, no. It's about raising awareness for that local charity. Because you know how it is today, the cutbacks all across the country with government subsidies, or maybe it's just really the way it's always been. Businesses need to do their part. Small, big, medium companies have got to commit more than ever to the community. And I, and I tell you, if you do that, we found that people really get it. They hear about it. Now we don't advertise, you know, half of what we do. But people come in and go, you know, Peter, I, I hear what you're doing. And, you know, that's why we're here. And you're listening to Peter Kenkro, and we're doing the backstory. He's Jersey Mike's founder. And my goodness, insights almost everywhere in this past segment. What's their pace? That's almost how he's sizing people up as they're walking out and around and through the parking lot. Are they just sort of lollygagging? Are they going real slow? Are they seem bored? Or are they energized? Do they have a sense of urgency? And it seems he's had his own sort of instinctive reaction to how to hire and how to think about hiring people. And that story about an immigrant from a bombed out Nicaragua being his number one owner of stores, 55, tells you not only what a what a franchise and what an operation Jersey Mike's is, but what a country we have that something like this is possible. When we come back, we'll learn more about this remarkable entrepreneur and giver. Give to give, by the way, is exactly right. Don't give to get back. Give to give. More with Jersey Mike's subs founder, Peter Cancro. The backstory here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories in the final portion of Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kenkro's story. And we return to Peter on one of the many charities they've gotten behind. So there's one um, just recently in L.A., Inland Empire, Cancer for College. 
and a gentleman had cancer and uh, you know got stripped of his funds and you couldn't didn't have the money for college he finally did but he said I want to do this and uh, incredible uh, you know idea and charity but small you know not this big net nobody really ever heard of it but cancer for college and we went in all the stores got together and we raised a million dollars the first year so he was like wow are you kidding me you know so he had the expectation we kind of talked to him about it we'd like to get involved we met him we saw his enthusiasm his passion for others and everybody wanted to get on board with his cause and there's just so many other examples where, hey, we don't raise a million, we raise 10,000 for a couple of stores getting in. But it's the idea and the, and the purpose that we go after. And that's the most important thing as a company that we like to talk about. It's not about, you know, billions of sales and profits. We like to talk about how much we like to, you know, give and be involved in, in making a difference in people's lives. And what's most remarkable is that Peter and Jersey Mike's have been doing that far before their billions in sales. And we're just one store trying to survive. Uncle Tom, we called him, and um, he was uh, had diabetes, had uh, his legs amputated, and, and then he lost his sight. But we used to pick him up from his house and bring him in the store, pretty much set him at the table all day, and, uh, you know... He'd have the sub, we'd have, uh, he loved the John Wayne movies, we'd have that on the TV, and we would just talk, and then when he lost his vision, we would just talk out loud, the customers were in line, hey Tom, you know, this is guy so-and-so, and you know, he would just uh, converse with the people, you know, all day long. So it was a special time for all of us, for the crew, to see kind of what we did with him. <laughs> you know, so it's not so much what we did for him, wow, what he did for us, you know? I mean, to see his spirit, to see his attitude, I mean, just incredible. What happens with giving and getting involved with people's lives? So much you do and give, but boy, wow, what you receive is just incredible. Really touches your heart. But a lot of us have trouble stepping outside of the busyness of our lives to a love like this. Of course, trying to survive, I get it. But um, sooner or later, if they do get involved and get get in get into this it's uh, it's so rewarding it's just unbelievable but I, I tell you I think it's you know I'm a big proponent of you know turn off the news right and if you look at it it's it's a huge movement out there in the world of good you know things are happening things are really rising up people are kind of uniting and together it's not left liberal it's not right conservative no I'm talking about the, the, the rising movement of people helping people. Unlike what the news says, you know, we see it totally different. We see, you know, we're optimistic about the future, about what great things are happening. The rise of good is overcoming the negative. And I firmly believe that. I mean, and I, I think it's, it's actually factually true. You know, if you look, I read something recently where it was sent to me like, wow, if you look at people in poverty, people, uh, you know, all those criteria, it, the world has never been better. It's amazing. The un uneducated, poverty, you know, on and on and on. It's better now than it ever has been in the history of the world. Sure, there's always negative, absolutely. But if you focus on the great stories, the good, I mean, wow, it's inspiring to help people. 
let's go, let's do more, let's commit. So turn off the news to the audience, right? Not the radio station, but the TV news. Keep the radio on, <laughs> you know, because you're hearing good, positive stuff. Now the brand is really starting to resonate. It's really starting to get out there. And we're, we're kind of the overnight success, if you will, um, that we've been working at it, you know, for a long, long time. But that's okay. You know, and, and people say, who are you? What are you guys doing? We just, uh, Entrepreneur Magazine just came out, top 500 franchises in the country. So number one was Dunkin'. Number two, I think, was Taco Bell. Number three, McDonald's. Planet Fitness was in there in the top 10. I think Great Clips was, or the year before. So all franchising, right? Jersey Mike Subs, we were ranked eighth. Eighth, people are saying, who are these guys? Almost like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who are these guys? 1969, best movie, right? <laughs> a lot of times people will say, well, you know, how did you get to where you are now with your company? And I go, well, you know, I showed up every day for almost 45 years. And it's really kind of ironic that, you know, several years ago, not until, you know, maybe 2012, 2013, 2014, I looked around and I go, wow, I think we're doing pretty well. We're so focused on all the details, on all the fundamentals, on all the training about opening a store, about driving real estate, you know, around the country and finding the best site next to Starbucks, next to Chipotle, next to Five Guys and getting in and then opening to win, not signing a lease until we knew the exact cost of the restaurant and then doing the right training and then the right marketing. We're so focused on so many things and just constantly just all over that that we picked up our heads one day and said, oh my goodness, we're winning all of these awards. And when you win the award, you say, okay, well, thanks so much. And then you go, okay, guys, congratulations, but let's go back to work. You know, we're kind of really driving ourselves every day to improve. How do we do better? How do we help our owners, you know, rise up? That's our job. I mean, that's what we got to do. Like a football season, you finish the season, okay, great. Now let's get ready for next season. Or each week, you know, okay, how did it go? Great. Now we got to get ready for next week, for next month. That's sort of how we operate. It's funny, over weekends and things, people say, oh, you know, you know people sit Saturday, Sunday, and just watch, watch the games, like all weekend. I go, what are you doing? How are you going to break out of what you're, where you are, what you're at? And if you, do, if you, you got to get up and get into the game of life, get into life. For anybody in starting out their career or in their career right now, it's the what is your passion? So, you know, yeah, I mean, um, well, I've worked now to be, what, 45 years this March that I've owned the company and, you know, get up every day and I am running, you know. I've, some people say, you know, I should slow down and they say that to me and I run away from them. <laughs> so, you know, you try and understand some kind of balance you know, I still have to work at that. You know, I, I, I admit I don't have that much, but I love what I'm doing. I love the purpose that we have. Um, and, you know, people have to, you know, they've been told this many times. Everyone is saying this. Find what you're passionate about, and then it's not work. You know, it's, you should be going to your job every day if you're a teacher and love raising kids up and being an example to them. If you're an attorney, you know, there's one path, the right way, you know, and fight hard for your client. And, you know, everyone, whatever they're doing, should be doing 100%.
you know, being passionate, getting up every day and loving it. And if you don't, you know, you need to find something before, you know, to, to divert to, to go to. But don't leave what you have until you find that thing. <laughs> you know, that's why I always tell kids, no, no, if you've got something, stay with it and then find something to go to. Then you go. Yeah, I listened to Peter and, you know, I, I quit, you know, the job. No, no, no. Find something first. You know, I never really like to tell my story. I never like to talk about it, but you really need to. So people hear it, you know, and maybe it impacts, you know what? I'm going to do that too. And we really did need to hear that story. We all need to hear each other's stories, especially overcoming obstacles and doing what many people would think is the impossible. And great work on that by Alex. It's the backstory, Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kencrow. And my goodness, he said it so plainly. I showed up every day for 45 years. I was focused on the fundamentals with my team, my details. I wanted to lift and raise up my owners. And I wanted to train and invest in my people. And I wanted to give for giving's sake. This is not actually that complicated. It's just hard to do. Find your passion, stick to it, and don't quit. And we're not hearing these kind of life-affirming messages. And we violently agree with Peter Turn off the news. There is so much good out in the world. And that's our goal here on Our American Stories, is to bring this good out to the world. This country's working. It's got its problems. Our families have problems, but we overcome them. And it's never been a better time to live than now. I always ask people, what century, what time would you rather live than now? And where? And my goodness, the world votes with their feet moving to this great country. We had one of his top people move from... Really, if you knew what Nicaragua was like at the time that he was living there, to compare what he had there to what he has now, the freedoms, the opportunities, get going, get moving. And we love Peter's voice, but my goodness, we also love the sandwiches. And my goodness, the fresh cut meat, the vinegar, the vinegar. That's all I can tell people, the vinegar. And of course, the fresh cut onions, the fresh cut lettuce. I could go on and on. It is the best sub, but it didn't come from nowhere. It costs more to do that. They put on all that meat. They cook and cure their own stuff. Uh, It's that attention and love of detail. And it's there when you go into the shop, like you do when you go to Southwest Airlines. There's not a recording telling you about how to buckle your belt. There's a human being, and they're trying to entertain you and make something semi-miserable into something, well, pleasant. Not easy to do in these days. The Backstory, Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kankrow. If there's a Jersey Mike's near your neighborhood, get to one, try it. You'll become an addict like me. And if you're looking to start a business, my goodness, get a franchise. I'm thinking of getting one myself. If it doesn't, if one doesn't come here to Oxford, Mississippi soon, I'm going to find out how I can buy one. Peter Kankrow's story, Jersey Mike's sub-story, here on Our American Stories.